Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We're taking you back in time to the Second World War, when many women were left to farm on their own as their husbands and sons went to war. Rhoda McWannell was one of those women, and she kept a diary of her struggles and successes. Her great-niece, Alex Shepard, has been combing through Rhoda's journals, and as Professor of Gender History at the University of Glasgow, she found them particularly fascinating. Here's a taste of Rhoda's wartime farming journals, read by actor Amy Tarleton. They have no idea at home what it feels like to work at a great paddock of grass, ready to cut, and to know that you yourself have to lift and handle and stack every single blade of it, and then, in rain and wind, feed it all out again. Or what it feels like to start milking a cow and find a hard quarter, and then week after week henceforth to mess about with disinfectant in a separate cup and a separate bucket and disinfect your hands before you touch anything else and get rid of the filthy milk from that quarter and watch the other quarters go so that a cow worth £20 one week is only worth £2 the next. She was quite twinkly, she was very short and she had her hair drawn up in a bun. She looked a bit like a pepper pot. She was generally smartly dressed. She wore a frock and a cardi, and she ate oat cakes for breakfast. My name is Alex Shepherd, and I'm a professor of gender history at the University of Glasgow. And Rhoda McWannell was my great aunt. I met her when I was four. I was lucky enough to have my fourth birthday at Roselle, which was the farm that she and her husband, Mac, created in the Waikato. She was an amazing diarist. So her journals begin in 1938, and she kept up writing for 50 years. Yeah, she loved writing, clearly loved writing. She needed to write as often as she could. Our first lamb was born yesterday. A bonny wee brown-faced one. I had begun to feel sure we would be depending only on dead wool for our income this year, so it was a ray of hope. We took the ewes for a browse this morning. Have taken them almost every day for weeks past. It is a lovely job on a fine day. Warm sun and sweet dry bracken and friendly fantails. It seems as if it must be good for them. It is so pleasant. The most striking thing is just how hard she works. Her work is relentless. She's clearly a striver and she's a perfectionist. She has quite high standards, but she's a great commentator on farming in general and just how demanding that is, um, particularly actually of women's time. I suppose 
that the experience I am having is common to farms all over the world at present. Not only on the side of the United Nations, but of enemy countries too. The neglected fields are unaware which side of the war their absent husbandmen are fighting on. And if it is like this here, what must it be like in countries that are actually devastated? This is the sixth lambing I have tackled without Mac. Amazing. It is an experience that does not fall to the lot of many women. I have really enjoyed this week. While the weather has been fine and things going well. They have a very small dairy herd, which is mainly her responsibility. Um, and then once the war gets underway, they sell the cows. Uh, because Mac leaves the farm, he serves in the army initially at various camps, training troops. And then he's transferred to the Air Force and is involved in setting up the um, first bomber base um, in New Zealand um, for the Pacific War. So he's away for most of the war. He comes back occasionally on leave. And, you know, Rhoda takes over the management of the farm and they, they sell the cows and she's responsible for about 350 ewes and her hens and the garden and still all the housework Cooking, if there's ever any workers on the farm, then she's not just cooking for herself, but she's cooking for them. They're shifting sheep all the time. They're marching sheep up and down to keep them in good condition. They're, often she's working 18-hour days, sometimes even more. She, she describes her fatigue at times as well, and then she'll finally get to bed and then she can't sleep because... All the worries are going round her head and about whether or not she can get rid of her produce or... The apples are thorough bastards. Nobody will have them. No, definitely not apples. The government has complete control of them. They are rationed. It is impossible for a humble grower like me to reach the government with my apples in any way... They will make good compost. And what use will the compost be? I could use it to grow more produce, to make more compost. She can be very wry about all the small, crazy things about life that just don't add up. That things that seem super sensible and straightforward to her and when she runs up against obstacles, she can be very funny as a way of criticising what she sees as general idiocy around her. I have entered the black market. Lemons keep ripening. Every box I can find is full. We have wrapped up so many in newspaper that we use one day's paper before the next comes. Nobody wants them. I sent a case to Mary McWannell at a cost of four shillings fourpence. She goes crazy over them, says that in Christchurch they are unprocurable at any price, and these are the best we have ever sent. As we also have hundreds of pounds of perfect apples we cannot grapple with, I asked Anderson if he buys bundles. No. The demand is great and urgent, but he is forbidden by the government from buying local lemons. In disgust, I packed a basket of five dozen lemons, which I took into the co-op, 
I covered up this disgraceful secret with brown paper, slunk into the darkest corner of the shop and slid it over the counter, whispering my guilty admission to the man that these were lemons. He made me sign a form and handed me seven and six. I crept out, hoping nobody had noticed my transaction and feeling that one might almost as well be a case of VD as have a bit of produce to sell. There has been so much warm rain that the whole farm is growing what Matt calls dynamite. To wit, lush, green, soft, eczematous grass. There's no vet locally, so if there's any bearing trouble or anything like that, you know, she's in the front line for that. Although actually I think some of her medical training comes in handy there. She's not squeamish, you know, she will get stuck in. This afternoon I put the ewes in number six and left them there over two hours because they'd been in there for about five days and I, I thought they would be safe for that time. But when I took them out, there was a fine young ewe down, writhing with the violent indigestion of bloat, limbs stiff, eyes staring out of her head, breathing like a runaway steam engine and sides blown up tight as a drum. My heart failed me. Not only at the sight of her suffering, but at the thought of having to tell Mac I'd lost another you, and also the knowledge that I must do something about it. I mixed a drench of baking soda and gave her that, and then felt for her ribs and chose the spot just below them, and with grim determination plunged the carving knife into her side. Well, I expected gas to come whistling out, but it didn't. It came bubbling slowly in some blood like a little pool of boiling mud at Rotorua. It smelt just like the overpowering smell of cow's breath. I kicked the puncture open with the knife and, and held her so that her head was up and, and persevered like that for an hour or more, while gas kept bubbling out and her breathing became easier. Finally she staggered to her feet and tottered away, looking okay as far as her face went, and breathing normally, but very wonky in her gait. It was just dark then. I wonder if she'll be alive in the morning. The one thing she, she really doesn't like doing is killing animals, um, but she's, she's up for pretty much anything else. She writes about all of that, and incredibly vividly. Um, she writes about what it's like to do the milking and have eczema on her hands. And My hands had got to the stage with milker's eczema that all the back of each thumb and every tiny division in the skin was cracking and beginning to bleed and so itchy I could tear them to ribbons and stinging furiously every time they got wet. And acute cowpox inside my nose so that I had to go to all the bother of breathing in and out all the time instead of not knowing I was breathing. She writes about what it's like to dock lambs and yeah she's just um, just full of vivid description. It is miraculous having a dog that is eager and willing to work and, and so keen that he can see himself what is needed. 
after that idle fool of a Joe all these years, it really thrills me. Jock is so young that he is often in doubt and he looks at me, just waiting for a hint. And then off he goes, like an arrow. He just floats over fences or gates. He rounds up sheep with hardly any guidance, to and fro, keeping them all in place, and nips without actually biting and barks. The sheep, accustomed to Joe, of whom they take no atom of notice, don't know what the hell has struck them and they go bounding about at an incredible speed, so I often have to keep shouting, steady, steady. I do not know the whistle to stop Jock, nor can I make him sit down. Anyway, it was sort of misty down there, and it took some time to get all the groups of sheep into one mob before opening the gate into the lane. I got them all up and was just about to put them in the yard when I saw Jock's attention wander. And there was Mac. He was amazed, having come to do the job and not knowing I could work the dog. He patted me on the back and said it was most impressive and I was a damned sight more capable than he thought I was. You know, Rhoda had an idea for a book that she would love to have written, which was called Backline Soldiers. And it was about the unsung valour of women on the home front during the Second World War. I mean, Rhoda at the time would have been classified as a housewife and as a dependent, as a married woman. And her work wouldn't have counted or wouldn't have been seen to count. I think what's interesting is her writing shows just how vital her work was. Not just to the war, but uh, Mac depended heavily on her. Um, There's no way that farm could have run without her. I think also seeing her growing confidence and independence uh, during the Second World War, lots of women whose husbands were away found and learned all sorts of new skills and a greater sense of autonomy. And I think it was a, it was a really interesting time for gender relations. She really knew what was going on from several sources. So she read the papers um, voraciously. She listened to the news. She has the radio on constantly and quite often records the, um, the BBC bulletins from Daventry. The BBC Home Service. Here is a special bulletin read by John Snag. D-Day has come. Early this morning, the Allies began the assault on the northwestern face of Hitler's European fortress. In fact, there's a lovely entry when she talks about walking around her kitchen trying to speak in English-received pronunciation like they do on the BBC. So she's, she's imitating um, the accent she hears on the radio. And, of course, because Mac is serving first with the Army and then with the Air Force, she gets all the military gossip from him. So she records quite a bit about petty squabbles happening at camp or whether or not Mac thinks New Zealand troops are ready, especially after uh, the Japanese enter the war and there's a real fear in 1942 of of possible invasion. It's interesting because on the one hand, she's really aware of what's going on globally, you know, where the action is, um, 
when ships have been sunk or where battles are taking place, what kind of losses are happening. And then she feels the incongruity of how her life is relatively peaceful. The other morning, Jock vanished. In consternation, I whistled and whistled and whistled. As time went by and further piercing and prolonged whistling produced no sign of him, I began to view the matter as a calamity of international importance. He is not in the habit of disappearing, and the poor darling has no road sense whatever, so I was oppressed with horrid forebodings for his safety. Furthermore, I was in urgent need of him to shift sheep at once, because otherwise I visualised myself spending the rest of the day treating bloat which I had no desire to do, or alternately digging graves, which prospect was dismaying to a degree. I prowled uneasily about, whistling my loudest, and thinking that obviously I cannot manage for even half a day without Jock. If he is lost, I shall have to get Mac to return to the farm. Awful pictures in my mind of me and Mac running blasphemously round and round barking at yous, and then I thought that, incompetent as the army is now, without Mac it will fail utterly. Chaos will reign, and the collapse of the New Zealand forces will result in a speedy and glorious victory for Hitler. And then quietly, and without haste, I saw Jock wriggle through his hole in the fence and come ambling towards me. I was so profoundly thankful to see him that I forbore to give him the thrashing he so richly deserved, but I did explain to him that he must not again jeopardise the Allied cause and the British Empire in that light-hearted manner. She'll say something like how odd it feels to turn on the radio and hear news of the latest round of losses and then think, ah, oh, it must be time for toast. You know, that she's just getting on with her daily life. But then at the same time, her daily life, she starts seeing in these sorts of military terms. So, you know, her sheepdog jock now is part of the imperial forces. And when mice get in the hen feed, she talks about bringing in the panzer division to try and eliminate them. And so she uses uh, a lot of the rhetoric of the day so lovely walking on the crisp sand and watching the ewes enjoying themselves and looking over the hills at the heavenly blue distances and green pastures. I was listening to all the nice little sounds as if the world was gently purring. It was so quiet and the warm sun on my back felt like a caress. The patter of the ewes' feet on the sand made just the same noise as tiny waves on a beach. The birds were all about and the hedges winging to and fro, not singing, but there was a constant twittering and cooing going on all about. In the distance a dog barked and a train whistled. I walk in front with a stick and Hoppy walks behind with Jock. The ewes trot along up the banks and into the brambles and nose among the long grass for tasty morsels. After all the rain, it is grand to get out of the mud onto the firm sand and change from mushy grass to lovely crunchy dry grass and bracken. 
I thought, watching them. They are exactly like us civilians in wartime, with Churchill in front to lead us, and Hitler behind to bite us. And what each one makes of the journey depends entirely on individual initiative and, and enterprise. The extraordinary thing is that, having got this far, I would much rather carry on and finish the job myself than hand it over. I'm exceedingly proud of my war effort. Rhoda McWannell, farmer, writer and painter, brought to life by actor Amy Tarleton. You also heard from Rhoda's great-niece, Professor Alex Shepherd, on the phone to me from Glasgow. The diaries are now with the Alexander Turnbull Library and we'll put some links on our webpage. Alex hopes to put out an edition of Rhoda's wartime diaries and longer term an online account of her life and times. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.